0: Welcome back to the show. My name is Michael Lin and this is the MongoDB podcast. We're talking about sizing today. And my guest has written a talk entitled why seven clusters are cheaper than one. Interesting title. If you've moved your workload or even if you've deployed a new application, you've likely wrestled with the challenge of getting it right. How many clusters do you need? How much CPU? How much disk space? Some of these questions are harder than others. My guest today answers those questions and more. Stay tuned to learn why seven clusters may be cheaper than one. This is the MongoDB podcast. Well, Jan, welcome to the show. We're going to talk today about a talk that you you wrote and prepared for MongoDB World, and the title of it was intriguing to me, caught my attention. It's... Why seven clusters are cheaper than one? Do you wanna explain a little bit of the background there?
1: uh, yes, yeah. so the talk was kind of structured around documenting the journey that we had with Mongo from the very beginning where when we just spun up one cluster and then used that all the way to what we are using right now, which for that specific use case was like seven clusters, but we grew to I think twenty four or twenty five clusters as of present day. So we, we grew quite a lot. Uh, so it was kind of the journey that we took and how we split the clusters, how we identified what should be sitting in the same clusters and how it affected our resource usage, our cost, our performance, that sort of thing.
0: Well, I think that's applicable and probably interesting to anybody that's responsible for running a MongoDB cluster in Atlas, maybe even out of Atlas, but we're, we're probably going to focus on MongoDB Atlas as a an infrastructure, and I, I want to back up just a little bit, and when you say we, what company are you with and, and tell me a little bit about that company?
1: Okay, so I work for a company called Global Logic. We are a, a full lifecycle software development company, and for the last three and a half years, uh, I've been working with, with our partners in Catalina. Catalina is a us based company here in St Petersburg uh, they They are in digital and in-store advertisement space. So uh, one thing that specifically my teams are working on is uh, deterministic measurement. So essentially, we can tell you when you run a campaign through, let's say, Google Ads, uh, how successful the campaign exactly was, meaning if you spent 1000 bucks on a campaign and you reach 300 customers, how many of those customers actually went to a store and bought a product that you were advertising? That sort of thing.
0: Wow, so full life cycle from online to actual in-store
1: yeah when i uh yeah when i say full life cycle in the context of gl what i meant is that we are a company that can build you software from the ground up all the way to maintaining it in production servicing it that sort of thing with catalina uh i would say two major parts of business it's uh it's our in-store business which is that's our legacy legacy thing that we ran for a long time and the digital side of things is, is something that's fairly new. It's, it's a matter of maybe the last five years, but it's, it's really booming. And we have a lot of products in that space that are focusing on different, different spaces as far as measurement, audiences, segments. Uh, it's, it's, really, it, it's, it's way past the scope of what my teams are doing because the digital space is like five or six teams and a lot of people. So so there's a lot of things that even I don't know that we have, but those are the things that I kind of tablo in.
0: And so you mentioned it's a journey. It's pretty typical. We're on a journey. And where did that journey start with, with MongoDB? I understand that you, you deployed the application previously on, on another platform. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so what we originally started with was something called CosmoDB, which is essentially uh, what i like to say is it looks like a duck it it looks like a duck but it's not a duck <laughs> uh, meaning that uh, <laughs> it's wire compatible with mongo driver but it's not really a mongo database it's just trying to look like one and there's a lot of symptoms that come with that meaning for example that if you have 100 functions inside a mongo driver it they supported maybe 65 and there were some gadgets like if you would drop a table that, have, uh, that had um, traffic going against it, it would crash your database. And it happened to us multiple times in production. And it got to a point where we essentially said, enough is enough. And we started to look for alternatives. And since we were already using the Mongo driver, obviously, we started looking into Mongo. So one thing that we originally did was we actually spun up our own Mongo instance. That we ran on for for significant time, but we understood that it wasn't really good production solution, simply because we didn't have the experience with running that sort of database, and also we are trying to focus on we are not a infrastructure or or that sort of company that would like to maintain their own infrastructure. We we rather focus on the actual product and what it's doing. So that's when we we approach Mongo and we we kind of got together, went over. You went know, what we are doing, what kind of scope we are looking at, and uh, also the specifics. Because of some privacy concerns, let's say we are running almost exclusively on Azure. So that, that was also a key point that uh, there's a lot of good databases, but not a lot of them were on Azure and they were mature enough for us to use.
0: So starting with Cosmos DB and migrating to an on-prem MongoDB instance, and then ultimately moving into be Atlas. And that's where you are today, correct? Yes. Right. And uh, like I said earlier, the, the title of your talk was pretty intriguing. How is it possible that seven clusters can be cheaper than one? Give us the answer to the, to the riddle first, and then we'll go into the specifics about how the infrastructure comes together.
1: So it has to do with scaling, uh, meaning that if your whole infrastructure is hitting one database or one cluster, that cluster is never going to catch a break, meaning that if you have auto scaling enabled, it's always going to be scaled up. It's, it's never going to have a grace period where the traffic goes down enough for it to break the threshold of scaling down and actually scale up. So the more you can kind of portion this uh, into smaller pieces that have common traffic patterns, the, the more you can utilize scaling.
0: Okay. So auto-scaling is a key element here. And when we're comparing one cluster to seven, or seven clusters to one, the thing that we're not talking about is the fact that you're talking about a a really large cluster, maybe a M100 scale with auto-scaling turned on versus seven smaller, maybe M30, M20, something like that. And maybe talk a little bit about, for the folks that are listening, that no Atlas, Atlas the database as a service in the cloud, above the cloud providers, maybe talk a little bit about the auto scale feature built into MongoDB Atlas.
1: Yeah, so that was one thing that we wanted to utilize because we have pretty predictable traffic patterns as the times moves on. So I would say our peak times are anywhere between four and ten PM, and then overnight it goes significantly down. So we wanted to utilize the auto scaling simply so we don't have to go every day and scale it up and down to keep the cost at bay, right? So uh, as you said, we were running anywhere between M80 to M200 range, depending on the time of the year. Because that's that's also we have we have patterns for that. Where close to major holidays like Thanksgiving or Christmas, our traffic goes significantly up. Like sometimes two, three times more than let's say in January. So we wanted to utilize the auto scaling for that and. As I said, with that one cluster, it was impossible because you just can't give it a break enough. So what we started to do was we kind of identified what are are our traffic patterns and what are the common things that applications do on that cluster, and also which type of resource that action actually affects. Meaning if you are doing a lot of aggregation uh, pipelines, your disk is going to get hit a lot if you're doing a lot of super optimized queries that are hitting small subsection of your index, the only thing that really going to be spiked is your CPU, these sort of things. And then we also looked at, hey, what are our applications doing? Are they accepting traffic from, from web and just saving small samples into the database? Are they batching? Are they running aggregation pipelines? Uh, are they backend for UI? That that sort of thing. And from that, we were able to dial it down to thanks to the metrics API or metrics UI in in the Atlas UI, I was able to kind of dissect it to which application doing what actions. And that would allow me to kind of put them into groups that should use same cluster because the aim there was on one cluster to have a predictable curve of where the traffic sits. So if I have applications that have traffic that peaks between 4 and 10 p.m. and then it goes down overnight, I want all of those applications on that one cluster. If I have applications that are running batch jobs at 12 a.m. and 12 p.m., I want those to sit on the same cluster. And therefore, you will essentially force these patterns on the clusters. And then when you enable the scaling the cluster will actually scale up and down, sometimes multiple tiers up and multiple tiers down because you are actually having periods where your traffic goes down or traffic goes up.
0: Mm. So essentially what you're talking about is understanding the workloads intimately in your application and dividing those across a separate or individual set of clusters, right? Correct. How did you know about the workloads? Do you just understand the applications or were you able to visualize and see those patterns in MongoDB Atlas?
1: Actually both. So just historically, because I've been on, the, on on the Catalina journey for a long time, I personally written a lot of those applications or did at least part of those applications that I understood enough what they were doing, so I was also able to dissect it based on, uh, as I said, the, the metrics UI and the, and the operations uh, views. And the Mongo UI kind of give you overview of what kind of operations you're running. And when you go into the detail, you can actually see which tables you're running those on. So you know that this table from this application is getting 90% of queries. Uh, this table is getting inserts only, that sort of thing. So this, this helps you kind of dissect it into those groups.
0: Now, how did you personally learn MongoDB and how did you become so adept at at analyzing the performance?
1: Uh, Well, as I said, since we were using the MongoDriver compatible databases before, it was just historic knowledge of knowing how to essentially write Mongo queries or work with Mongo in general. Uh, We also use something called Spring Data. So that's more for, uh, we use different types of storages other than Mongo for different jobs, let's say. So sometimes it, it's, it's easier to use to swap things out especially with moving between cosmo and mongo and standalone the thing thing that saved us in that situation was that that the fact that it was wire compatible so when we were migrating actually we we had to change maybe a couple queries and that was more because on the CosmoDB db they weren't supporting especially uh, some operators in the aggregation pipelines So we had to do some sort of workarounds around that. And then when we moved to actual native MongoDB instance, we could just use the operators and simplify those things. Mm. But generally speaking, it was very little effort as far as code changes to to move to to Atlas. It was more about how do we move the data?
0: How did you migrate the data?
1: I think, uh, and this is a long time ago the initial initial thing was just a uh, mongo dump and then import to new cluster
0: okay gotcha so what's the scale like i understand that you've got many clusters today and each of those are operating independently you know auto scaling up auto scaling down as the the workloads increase and decrease but how much data are we talking about
1: okay so we are talking from very tiny clusters that have maybe a couple hundred records to the biggest cohesive unit that we have, I think, is uh, is this system that consists of right now seven clusters, but they are kind of working in unison and they combined have around 5 billion data samples. So that it's, it's essentially our biggest indexing solution. So it's, it's a giant index of 5 billion records that we need to look up. It, it's an integral part of our measurement business. So we, we have to do those lookups a lot and fast. So that, that's why it's seven clusters in, in unison working together. Uh, and some of those are actually sharded.
0: Oh, okay. And did you avail yourself of the MongoDB consulting services at all as you were going through your journey?
1: Um, I believe you used it at the, at the very beginning in some capacity. But as I said, since we had a lot of experience with at least the, the Java driver for Mongo, it wasn't really that much effort for us to migrate that we would that need Consulting in that situation,
0: and so it's it's Java. It's largely a Java application. Are there other components in other languages?
1: As far as Mongo goes, or things that connect to Mongo, I think it's pretty much ninety-five uh, percent Java. There are some Scala things like uh, batch jobs that might be pulling some information or pushing information into Mongo, but ninety-five percent it's Java and Spring.
0: Now, aren't there limits on? the number of scaling operations that can take place in a certain period of time?
1: Not that I'm aware of, because I can tell you from when I was building that giant indexing solution that I would scale eight clusters inside the same project at the same time. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I hit ever as a limitation was We had some things running in east u.s which is getting bogged down uh in azure and that's more azure thing it's not a uh, issue with cosmo you can sometimes with the bigger tiers run into limitations that 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 sort of vm is just not available but it's usually i believe that's uh that the same situation happens on aws in in those older data centers that just are running out of space on everything
0: so jan as you moved into this multi-cluster deployment. Were there other aspects of the configuration that you needed to consider, like indexing, for example?
1: Uh, yes. So that was also a part of it, because if you, if you are uh, running a lot of different big collections on the same cluster, you will be eating through a lot of RAM. <laughs> so so you, you will be essentially forced to run that bigger tier simply because of the amount of indexes and stuff that you have to keep in cache. So that's another thing that uh, the, the scaling of the of the Mongo cluster is not linear, let's say. You, it's not you're jumping from one to two to three. It's more like you're jumping from one to three to seven to whatever else. So that's also a factor. And, and especially with, with that indexing solution that we built, I went through a lot of experimentation. So the, the obvious first choice was just do one big sharded cluster with 5 million records and deal with it that way. The problem with that was that out of the 5 billion records, they are split into, let's say, 12 groups. Those 12 groups are of various sizes. You can have a group that has 3 million records. You can have a group that has 800 million records. So at that point, if you try to shard by that group, which is the most obvious choice, you will have really unbalanced shards. And that will also cause overscaling because the, everything else will will scale based on that biggest sharded gap. So that's the one thing that, that we couldn't do.
0: I want to pause you there. And, and the fo- folks that are listening that may not be familiar, the way that Atlas scales in a sharded environment, sharding is, is really just partitioning, right? So uh, we can shard and there's a cluster per, in many cases, at least one machine, but one cluster per shard and the shard sizes, the cluster sizes for each shard must be uniform, right? So, what you're talking about is determining the maximum throughput, the maximum CPU, the maximum disk space for each individual shard. That's going to set the, the high watermark or the low watermark for the cluster sizes for each shard, correct?
1: Correct. And also, over time, these records TTL. So we, well, the, the indexing solution runs, let's say, 95% of the month. It's real. And then there's maybe one or two days when we do monthly refresh for that specific group where we dump multiple millions of data in and also update a bunch of records that will TTL. So you also have a giant fluctuations. We had a fluctuation at one point that we started out with 850 million uh, documents in one group. And in two months, it dropped by 300 million. So you have also fluctuations like this, which on the sharded environment, if you start doing this, you will probably start to shuffle chunks and you will be moving a lot of data again. So that, that was number two reason why we, why we stopped using uh, or we didn't use the sharded one giant sharded cluster. When we went to the idea of using multiple clusters, the thing was that, okay, but we need something that will that will essentially collect all of the results and return one response. So what we did, we we built a software layer on top of all of this that kind of takes the results from all of those small clusters and returns them as one response, which also for scaling of that, instead of hitting one cluster and then letting the cluster distribute the query, you are hitting eight separate clusters that are that have completely separate resources, that sort of thing. So it's a little bit of different scaling problem, let's say. And and we ended up what we ended up doing is right now, I think we are at seven clusters or six for the solution. And some of them are tiny, like m20, m30. And some of them we actually had to shard. Because even that one group that was sitting on that cluster was so big that you would either have to run really big tiers, which are pretty expensive, and also performance-wise, it was it was just better to split it into shard it just for capacity reasons, essentially.
0: You mentioned TTL there. Folks that are listening, TTL time to live. That's a an indexing feature built into MongoDB. You can basically set the time to live for individual records. You pick some date attribute in the document, right? And and over time, it will time out of the cluster. So, just wanted to uh, explain that for folks. And so, you built basically almost like a caching layer, right?
1: Yeah, pretty much. So, uh, also those services do actually no. We we are uh, we we don't do caching on the service layer simply because with using something like MongoDB that has its own cache, Captain Index, you can actually detriment the, res, uh, the performance if you introduce a software caching layer because then your caching layer on the database side is not as hard and you end up doing a lot of cold reads mm. because you, you keep it in cache you are not in the database the entry goes cold and uh, you end up end up hitting cold keys essentially so we just kept it all in the database and and that system been running close to a year right now i think and it's it's by far the the bi- biggest anything that we that we have in Mongo as far as terms of data as terms of uh, number of clusters the amount of traffic that goes against it.
0: Great. So, what other tips and advice would you have for folks that are that are looking to deploy a cluster like this?
1: Don't make the same mistake as us by putting everything into a cluster. <laughs> if you have a problem, try to solve it by just. Essentially, what we do right now is we start a new service, we start a new cluster.
0: Yeah. Uh, To what degree do you rely on the performance advisor built into MongoDB Atlas?
1: Especially in the early development phase, when you're trying to shake things out, when you're doing any sort of performance uh, testing, it's one of the first thing that you look into, especially because it can suggest uh, things like missing indexes so it's it's a it's a good quality control over over your code once you are running it, like let's say we start from dev environment so you just check the dev environment mongo to see hey am i missing some uh, some indexes or is something not hitting index that it should that sort of thing
0: now are you using any other of the features built into mongodb atlas um, data lake or uh, atlas search for example or maybe the the atlas data api
1: yeah, we dabbled into a lot of these. So we've been using Archive for a long time. We are migrating off of it, not for any specific reason that has to do with Bongo, It's just the, the business use case for it went away. We did some experimentation with search. Specifically, I think we were doing some, uh, some keyword searches that had to be more complex that it would just regular text index would allow. For a period of time, we also used the the graphs.
0: MongoDB charts.
1: Yeah, charts, yeah. So we used, uh, used that uh, for just some basic visualization, especially the map piece was something that uh, some of the people really liked, just to see the the overview of, hey, where where is my data coming from, essentially. So we used that, used that for a while. I don't think we used the data API yet. Mm-hmm. And since most of the stuff that we have is Java-based, we, we haven't really dabbled into the GraphQL API thing, simply because we, we don't have a use case for it as of right now, because usually we use a Java backend for everything. So so that's the, everything that goes through, through that cluster is usually Java driver. You essentially add a GraphQL layer on top of your regular Spring Data Module, and you can use it that way. So,
0: Well, Jan, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we begin to wrap up?
1: I I think we covered all of it.
0: Well, I wish you success with Catalina and and your other projects. And uh, once again, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks to Jan for joining me today. Thanks to you, the listeners. Make sure you check the show notes for resources and links to contact information for Jan If you find yourself on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave a rating. Let me know what you think of the show. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.